and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn, and here is part five in my series on footnotes to the book of Job. I finished the previous episode by noting the idea that there's a massive issue looming in the background of that book, and sometimes in the foreground too. Given that Job has faced up to a serious proverbial chaos dragon of sorts, the second Leviathan as I called it, it's well worth asking what we ought to make of the origin of that proverbial chaos dragon. In some sense, Satan is the instigator of Job's troubles, but really alarmingly, God seems to be the real instigator. So what is going on here? Well, to start with the obvious, it's clear that Job is just an alarming book, and it's not absurd to assume that the author meant for it to be alarming. Perhaps the most obvious reason for this alarm is that it's so terribly difficult to know what to make of the God character. In the first few chapters, we find God apparently giving in to the temptation of the Satan character. I say apparently because even if the prose section at the start of the book of Job reads easily, its meaning is far from obvious. Still, it seems, it is apparent when we read these early chapters of Job that God is really the one who gets to determine what awful things happen to human beings. The horror of the first few chapters can be put even more starkly. God seems to be in league with the devil, or more disturbingly than that, the devil seems to be in league with God. What in the world is going on? As the plot thickens, and as Job and his friends take turns to offer their own perspectives on the events uh, that have happened and, and what they mean, we start to recognize a major theme. A theme that can be easily stated in question form. What in the devil's name is going on in God's head? This question, as it turns out, is masking another question. Namely, should we be worrying about what's going on in God's head, or should we be more worried about what's going on in ours? You see, all the characters in the book make pretty strong statements regarding what they think is going on in the mind of the divine. Also, towards the end of the book of Job, God himself shows up. And when he does, he doesn't exactly explain himself. By the end of the book, Job has not been explicitly answered regarding all of the terrible things that have happened to him, and God's psyche is no less confusing than it was before. Sure, God reprimands Job's friends, and he kind of semi-reprimands Job, but this doesn't exactly solve the issue. Well, for me, the best way to clear this up, or at least begin to clear this up, because I don't think I'll be able to completely clear it up, is to look at what happened to Noah after the flood. In the previous episode, I talked about uh, the chaos dragon and, in some sense, you know, the symbol of water being the flood. So something in that story may have something to say to us about this story. What happened to Noah after the flood is a rather sad tale recorded in Genesis chapter 9. It's a story that doesn't generally make it into children's Sunday school lessons, but I think its significance is really profound. What happens, roughly speaking, is that Noah gets drunk and naked. That really is what happens. And then his son, who has the unfortunately unkosher name Ham, comes along and sees Noah naked, and then he tells his brothers about it. For this, Ham gets a very severe punishment, a punishment that doesn't just follow Ham, but the whole of Ham's line of descendants. Without going into too many of the details of the story, what we have here is, on the surface, a fairly harsh punishment for a seemingly innocent event. 
Ham just happened to see his dad naked, right? What's so bad about that? Well, we're dealing with an ancient story that is profoundly parabolic and therefore it should not be read only on the surface. The first thing to notice here is that Ham's seeing his dad naked has something to do with his perception. The issue is not Noah's nakedness per se, but the fact that Ham regards Noah as someone exposed and uncovered. And it is actually this perceptual framework that is being punished, not just the fact that Noah has been humiliated. This is supposed to be a lesson for us. When our perceptions of someone are distorted or wrong, when we're looking at them incorrectly, um, though we may in some sense regard these perceptions as being right, this will always result in us being alienated from those we have perceived incorrectly. And in fact, this goes for for um, seeing things and not just people. You know, if if we see things wrong, we're actually alienated from them. You'll know this in a very deep and painful way every time a misperception of someone you love gets in the way of your relationship. Just as you'll know this every time you try to do algebra without having your understanding of algebra in check. I am for the moment leaving the drunkenness of Noah part of the story out of this explanation. I'm not even going to touch on it here because for me it's another issue and it's not nearly as big a deal as as some people have made it out to be. Noah gets drunk, how terrible. I think it's just Puritan cultures that, that tend to see that as a problem. And this story did not arise out of a Puritan culture. Anyway, another point of Ham regarding his father as exposed and humiliated pertains to what the father figure symbolized within this era. And what the father figure symbolized was the whole way that reality was ordered. In a sense, the father could also um, be seen to symbolize things like culture and law. So when we read about the nakedness of the father, what we're reading about is a communication gap that leads to a misunderstanding or misperception of the whole way that everything works, a misunderstanding of a culture um, and a framework for engaging with reality, basically. Nakedness equates to various other things, of course. Vulnerability is one, human frailty is, is another, and human mortality is another. You get the sense of this, especially from the story um, of Adam and Eve in Genesis. However, the point about the nakedness of the father is not just his nakedness. It's about the assumption that the fullest dimension of the order of being represented by the Father has been made completely apparent to us. In other words, there's an assumption that what appears to us is reality itself, or that what seems to us is what really is. Interestingly enough, we have intimations of this confusion between appearance and reality in the Adam and Eve story. Their nakedness is directly linked to the eating of the fruit of knowledge, or of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are ashamed, of course, but they also assume that their own being has been made absolutely manifest to themselves, which is nonsense, of course. No one is ever patently transparent to themselves. But Adam and Eve's false beliefs on this point result in an alienation symbolized by their excommunication from Eden. When our certainty equates to reality for us, the thing we are likely to lose is reality itself. There are none so blind in a way as those who claim to see. Of course, God can claim, as is suggested in 
Isaiah 47, that he can see things nakedly. But it is a mistake when we do. We never see things as clearly as we think we do. It's not that we see nothing, um, but that what we do see is, well, just never the whole picture. When the so-called father figure or father construct is bare before us, it's natural to think that we are the masters of the universe, that we are the ones who have tasted the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which of course we have. The only problem is our supposed knowledge is what blocks us from access to the father figure or the father construct or culture or a more wholesome way of conceiving of reality. In fact, maybe it is our knowledge that is what is keeping reality out. This is a very helpful thing to remember as a kind of hermeneutic or interpretive principle when um, we're trying to understand or figure out the way that God is characterized in Job, as well as how God is characterized in the rest of the Bible. But more on this later. With this in mind, I think it's high time I clear something up. I've, I've already mentioned a few times that the Satan character in Job should be thought of as small s Satan. In other words, we're not dealing explicitly here in the book of Job with something entirely, as it were, capital S, Satanic. As Jewish religious thought develops, Satan becomes more and more the scapegoat for all evil everywhere and kind of the carrier of of all evil everywhere. And then this capital S, Satan, eventually becomes the primary dragon of chaos that needs to be destroyed in the fire in the book of Revelation. But at the beginning of the uh, story, and Job represents that beginning, this is not what Satan symbolizes. And this may be alarming to you, but I'm just going to um, try and explain what Satan really represents in the book of Job. I'm trying to be at least um, accurate in terms of its historical uh, context. In fact, even though small s Satan shares the name of capital S Satan, it's terribly helpful to treat these two characters as if they are not just points along the line of a narrative continuum, but as if they are totally different characters. So when I'm talking about the small s Satan, and when Job is is talking about small s Satan, we are not dealing with capital S Satan. So what does the small s Satan represent? Well, for starters, he seems to be the heavenly being who has been ordered to keep an eye on the world, especially for the purpose of locating loyalties and disloyalties. He's kind of uh, a moral accountant of sorts. And another way you could see him is that he's a bit like Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. He's a kind of conscience figure, maybe a bad conscience, whose job is to check where the wholeness in the cosmic drama is being maintained. Obviously, though, the word Satan also means accuser. And so another way of understanding his function is to see him as a kind of embodiment of what uh, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur would call a hermeneutics of suspicion within the story of Job. He is the incarnation of the spirit of perpetual negation. I like that sentence a lot. He is the incarnation of the spirit of perpetual negation. When we first encounter the Satan character, we find out that he's been roaming the world, which is precisely what he's supposed to do. He's doing his job, and God points Job out to him. And he does this in a way that's rather odd. Job becomes, in God's articulation of him, something of an object. In other words, it seems right at the start that God is not really taking Job's complete humanity and personhood into account. And at this point, the obvious thing to say is probably something like, you see, I see the emperor who is God in this story, and I can tell that he really has no clothes. <laughs> He's walking around naked, right? So if you're thinking this, just hang on. 
it's not a good idea to, to jump the gun. What the Satan character does is point out what seems most obvious to him, that Job, being a human being, is motivated by very human concerns. It's likely, in Satan's view, that Job is only being a good guy because it appears to be working in his favor. He is living, as it were, in an act-consequence moral universe. When Satan points this out, he is in fact humanizing Job in a way more than the God character seems to have done. And why is he doing this? What is the author trying to get us to understand? One of the clearest reasons why this Satan character is doing this is because he is, in a way, the lawyer in the book of Job. He is, (laughs) surprise, surprise, a kind of devil's advocate. And the trial of Job seems, in his estimation, to be kind of secondary. There are two others who are on trial in the book of Job. The first one is the most obvious. God himself seems to be on trial. The Satan challenges God in a way to keep God's conscience in check. And in the process, the Satan is also a symbol of what we should be doing as readers. This means that the second person on trial in the book of Job is you, the reader, and me, the reader. Because it turns out that challenging the nature of the divine is always bound up in who we are. When you talk about God, you are in fact also talking about yourself. This will always be true. If God looks naked to you just as Noah looked naked to Ham, the problem goes both ways. I don't mean that God is entirely a fiction, of course, or entirely a subjective construct, but I mean something more along the lines of how the nature of our faith will open us up only to specific aspects of the divine nature. Rigidly dogmatic people are terribly prone to having a rigidly dogmatic God, and people with more romantic sensibilities will tend to have a very romantic God too, and people who want to perceive themselves as nice, well, they will have a very sweet and lovely God. Um, If Job relativizes our relationship with the truth, as I suggested back in the second episode in the series, then it also helps us to come to terms with how we make claims about God. As Job and his friends battle it out, the nature of God is almost certainly the main point of contention. And the function of a hermeneutics of suspicion, demonstrated by the Satan character, is to challenge what Ricoeur calls a hermeneutics of understanding. This means that when we are asking questions like, why is God doing this to Job? And is this what God is really like? That's a very good question. We should also be asking ourselves, a few other questions like, is this how I see God? Or why do I see God in this way? This approach is helpful for reading the rest of the Bible too, because the Bible is a book written by people with their own will and desires and agendas and ways of perceiving. God then remains a perpetual question in the text. It's not that we're reading about what God is like in any simplistic sense. We are, but it's It's more complicated than that. What we're trying to figure out a lot of the time is why did those writers that we're reading perceive God in in those ways? Maybe we do think of God as as kind of naked before us. And and so we may assume that we see clearly into the mind of the, the divine. But in the process, the real thing that's happening is that we are being exposed. Job contends with the divine, but there are several points in which he admits that he, Job, that is, feels naked. It's not so much God that is naked 
when we see him exposed as, as it is ourselves. The text is reading us as much as we are reading the text. I'd argue that the book of Job is perpetually trying to unpack different ways of perceiving the divine, as well as finally providing a kind of God character who dismantles all perceptions of God. Um, kind of echoing Meister Eckhart's famous prayer, God rid me of God. There's something of that happening towards the end of the book of Job. The reason for the importance of dismantling the divine image is tied to one of the most vital of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 4, and that happens to be doubled up in Deuteronomy 5 verse 8, which is an injunction against making any graven image in the likeness of anything in, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that is supposed to, for us, represent God. Symbolically, this means we should be against any representation of God that fixes his image, that in a way renders him naked, even if that image is an ideal one, say an image rooted in heaven, or a real one rooted on earth, or a kind of pessimistic one, something rooted in, in something under the earth. I mentioned back in the first episode um, of the series that we have used the book of Job often in history, that is, to create a very solid image of the divine. As if to say, you see, I knew God was in league with the devil, or even more positively, see, I knew that God was behind everything that happened, so we don't need to worry about it, anything, you know, everything happens for a reason kind of uh, thing. Well, surprisingly enough, the Satan character and his hermeneutical suspicion is exactly the thing that, sh that should alert us to the problems of these ways of reading God. Whenever we make solid, clear, definitive pronouncements on the nature of God, we run into enormous trouble. We make graven images, which is tantamount to saying that we make dead things out of living th things, or a living thing, or out of life itself, or we turn something infinite into something finite. And what we're often doing in that process is we're really just painting a self-portrait instead of genuinely engaging with the divine. And the point of this is, well at least my point is, don't assume that you have understood the divine when it is ultimately impossible to do such a thing. We see through a glass darkly as, as the writer Paul says, so we should not go around pretending otherwise. This happens to be, uh, as an aside, my primary reason for tending to side with classical theism over various other um, theisms like process theology or open theism. As I mentioned um, previously, these other theistic explorations are amazingly helpful and fruitful and productive in their own way, and I'm very grateful for what I've learned uh, from grappling with them. But in the end, classical theism, for all of its trickiness and it, it, of course, it has pitfalls of its own. It offers a robust negative theology. That sounds like a contradiction in terms. Um, how, how can a theology be robustly negative? Well, what I mean is that I, I think it takes particularly seriously what I call the problem of the limited hermeneutical frame, which I hinted at previously when I spoke about how perception has a deflective function. Process and open theistic perspectives can be brilliantly nuanced and philosophically complex, but they seem to me to have arisen out of a kind of literalist reading of the Bible that, in my view at least, and it really is just an opinion, and I you know, don't want to ruffle too many um, feathers. I think, you know, like a lot of my friends are, adopt these theological views, and I'm quite happy for them to do that. But in my view at least, it, it does tend towards rendering an overly kind of concrete um, 
image out of what seems to me to be uniquely transcendent and therefore by definition beyond our frames of, of comprehension. As I see it, clarity, while certainly possible to an extent and while certainly congruent with reality and while certainly profoundly helpful for a lot of things, we need clarity, like, you know, knowing what things cost, knowing what, you know, how to function in the, in the world. Clarity tends to come at the expense of the whole. By necessity, it has to do this. When we receive clarity on anything, we need to acknowledge that we must, by definition, be leaving a lot out. The illusion of the graven image is that it presents a kind of clarity that can seem to be the equivalent of the whole picture. In fact, it is this kind of clarity that the book of Job challenges with its dialogical approach to truth. Of course, dialogical truth is not going to explain everything, but the idea is that if you account for more perspectives, you can at least be sure that you're not getting stuck believing that your account of reality is entirely sufficient. There's this one story that I really love um, about these two rabbis who spend weeks arguing <laughs> about a passage in the Torah. And God is listening to all of this going on, of course, and, and God gets terribly annoyed with them. And every argument um, of the one rabbi is met with a counter-argument from another, the other rabbi. And the two rabbis constantly modify their views and they keep on arguing and bickering. And it, it, it's very heated at times. And eventually God's patient, patience wears off. And he shows up and he tells the rabbis that he's tired of them bickering. So he's decided, he says to them, that he will tell them directly what that specific passage in the Torah means. In a rare moment of unity, the rabbis turn to the divine presence and tell him, to go away. <laughs> they explain that if he had meant for the Torah, Torah to be clearer, he would surely have ensured that it was clearer. The whole point of the Torah, as the story illustrates, is that we wrestle with it, that we keep on turning it like a jewel to see the myriad ways that it refracts the light of truth. Of course, it's not just the Torah, it's the other aspects of the Bible too. This is actually what the biblical story of Jacob wrestling with the angel is taken by many rabbis to mean. Jacob wrestles with the angel, refusing to let the angel go before the angel blesses him. He is, in effect, wrestling with the messenger, the Torah itself, and the angel does bless him in a way. Jacob leaves the wrestling match limping too, um, and the point of the story is that we do not come away from wrestling with the messenger or the message that we call the scriptures, without in some way being damaged. <laughs> I know that sounds like a very negative and destructive thing, but it is damage that helps us to grow. And it's also quite interesting just to notice that the angel walks away. What this means for me is that Jacob never owns or controls the messenger, just as we can never control or own the scriptures. There will, we can hope, always be something more to grapple with and argue about and learn from the pages of these ancient texts. But what precisely is the point of the wrestling? Well, the central issue presented by the limp of Jacob is that when all the wrestling is done, the way that we walk through the world is going to be different. Our lives will literally look different. That's what, I mean, Jacob wrestles with the messenger, he walks away limping. You see that he walks differently. 
And this, I think, is what we ought to look out for as we wrestle with the various perspectives on God offered in the book of Job. For instance, when we read Eliphaz's musings, beginning in chapter 4 of the book of Job, we encounter a very modest, wise man who originates from Teman. It's a city which in ancient Edom actually represents wisdom. And then at one point, Eliphaz describes this strange experience he had, which involved a dream and this feeling of overwhelming fear. And his hair stood on end, so it was a little bit terrifying too. And then a spirit came to him with a revelation. And the spirit prompts him to recognize that people cannot really be more righteous than God. This is something, by the way, that, that Job agrees with uh, later on. Now, when we read this bit, especially in the light of the divine rebuke that happens later in the book of Job, we may be incredibly quick to dismiss it. But I think that uh, to do this would be to miss something, which is that Eliphaz's experience has validity simply because it is his experience. Just because someone's experience of something differs from your own does not mean that the experience is wrong. Experiences themselves can't be wrong. Maybe we interpret them wrongly. But the experience always happens within a limited frame. One person's experience cannot automatically be made absolute and universal. If Eliphaz goes wrong, it's because he seems to use his own experiences to negate Job's experience. So the way to look at this is to ask, in what way Eliphaz's experience, which happens to be an experience of, of God in this case, could be helpful or instructive to us? In what way would an experience of the purity of the divine form shape us? Well, for one thing, it'd help us to always be on the lookout for goodness in the world. It would open us to the way that goodness is always something that transcends us. The truth of this would be, I think, fairly life-changing. But the fact that goodness or God's being transcends us does not automatically negate any goodness that we manifest. It would be better to see how our own goodness is dependent on that which is totally other to us. When the central protagonist, is, this is Job, is given another opportunity to speak in chapter 6, he tells Eliphaz how problematically he has neglected to weigh his grief in the balance. So Job saying, you know, you haven't really taken into account the fact that I am really, really suffering over here. Eliphaz may be right, for all we know, but as Job presents his critique, we find that a conception of God and or reality that fails to generate compassion towards someone in pain is probably a shoddy conception of God. Job, in effect, continues the hermeneutics of suspicion that the small s Satan character had started. However, that said, Job also pronounces that the arrows of the Almighty are in him, which is his way of saying that he feels as if God himself has been attacking him. Eliphaz has an idealistic view of God that may not account for the full picture. However, that said, given that we are dancing between a hermeneutics of understanding and one of suspicion, it's probably a good idea to apply the same approach to Job. What is he missing? And then, of course, we need to turn the focus to ourselves and ask that same question. What are we missing? Because we're all missing something. We experience God, whatever you know that means for you that, that that's a very complicated thing it could be the divine or the or goodness or you know a, a drive to be more compassionate to 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 others that 
um, the Tao or the self or transcendence. But we experience God always through the narrow frame that we ourselves are. But this doesn't mean that we cannot grow in our consciousness of God. This is the problem that a monological view of truth will never properly address. It assumes that our original perspective or starting point is the only one that should exist. And so Calvinists tend to remain Calvinists, unless, you know, that breaks. Or Catholics remain Catholics and Lutherans remain Lutherans because, well, this would happen only when a monological view of truth kind of closes in the ideological frame and resists anything that steps in from the outside to challenge it. It's not, by the way, that these perspectives don't have something valuable to teach us. In fact, my argument is that they do have things to teach us, a lot of really good things, simply because they exist and have in some form shaped people, often in surprisingly good ways, although sometimes in harmful ways too, I, I realize. I'd say, though, that it is terribly problematic to assume that once you've stepped onto one ideological bandwagon, that all other modes of being and relating to God and reality have thereby been rendered false and worthless. There's a proverb from the book of Proverbs that I really love. It says, trust in, in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. I know there are simpli simplistic ways to see this, but what I read in this proverb is this. God is the ultimate mystery, and trusting in the ultimate mystery means perpetually opening yourself up to it. The mystery represents the idea that existence, for all of its inconsistencies and intricacies, can be coherent. It can be the spirit that hovers over the waters of chaos and calls it to, to order. It can be the light that shines in the darkness, not allowing the darkness to overcome it. Do we need to fully understand it? Well, no. That's what mystery is. It's, it's that which escapes all of our articulations and conceptions. It's the kind of positive aspect of chaos, if you like. But on faith, we can accept that the mystery is somehow on our side. This, at least, is what the Hebrew Bible's frame and the other, the later frame of, of the Christian scriptures is trying to say. That which you do not see will keep you safe from that which you cannot understand. I'll say that again. That which you do not see, the mystery, will keep you safe from that which you cannot understand. The problem of the graven image is that it is precisely an image. It is something you can see. But it is only what we cannot see that will protect our sanity in the kind of chaosmic cosmos. Faith, more than anything, is a posture, the way I see it. it. It refers to the way that we open ourselves up to reality. But it is important, as that proverb says, and also as the book of Job seems to communicate, to realize that when we lean on our own understanding, we are more likely going to shut the divine out. We're going to shut the mystery out. Our experiences of God, and even of God's absence, um, or non-existence, you know, if that's been your experience, they show us something. And they have shown us something. We should take that seriously. They've presented us with a way of perceiving the wider reality outside us. But they are only our experiences um, and our perceptions and are, because of being our experiences and perceptions, limited to ourselves. 
So what if we were to be genuinely open to otherness, to, to that which genuinely doesn't conform to our graven images and our graven ideologies? Job wonders who God is and what he's up to. I think this is fair, and I'm pretty sure you will agree. His friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then later um, Elihu, they show up. And after a bout of silence, they, they try to explain what God is up to. And maybe they they even get a lot right while they're trying to you know battle through this issue. Because, seriously, who am I to question someone else's experience of God? But when God shows up in chapter 38 of the book of Job, we are all collectively faced with a string of questions. And behind the question is the biggest question of, of all, which is God himself or herself or itself or, you know, like language fails. And it happens to be a question that the book of Job doesn't solve. And so it's not a question that I'm going to solve. Um, I don't think it's a question to solve in any case, but a question to be in some sense lived. What is God like? Well, you can only know God insofar as you know yourself. You can only reflect God insofar as you are genuinely open to him. This is exactly what I think faith means. It means that we are open to reality in a particular way. And that means we will find what we're looking for, you know, no matter what that is. Maybe our faith is a negative faith. Well, then we will find the tragedies in the world. And maybe it's a positive faith. And then we'll find redemption in the world. So, of course, there are those who stick to the story that God is the cause of Job's suffering. This is what their faith allows them to see. Others see God the way that Job sees him, as inherently right no matter what. This is what Job's faith allows him to see. Others can't see God at all. Well, that's what their faith will will allow them to accept. This doesn't mean that everything is subjective, but that our access to everything is subjective. We can't escape it, so we might as well embrace it. This is how we are made, I think, and I think it's you know a wonderful thing, and it has something to do, I think, with the nature of the self, which is the subject of the next episode, and I hope you join me for that. So, uh, coming back to the question that sparked this episode, uh, the question that I finished the previous episode off with, who is the originator of the chaos dragon? Is it God or Satan? Well, it's actually a tough question to answer, but I guess what I've more than hinted at here is, is that the answer to the question is linked to the question of our own subjectivity. Uh, it's linked to how we ourselves are, are left exposed in the wake of chaos. So the real chaos dragon revealed through our encounters with trauma is in a pretty real way within us. In a real sense, the chaos dragon is, well, it is us. And that is certainly going to be linked to our perceptions of God or Satan or, well, pretty much everything. But just as the kingdom of heaven is within, the kingdom of chaos is also within. And that's probably a more obscure answer than you were perhaps hoping for. Um, so maybe another answer to the question of of who the the original chaos dragon is, is is something along the lines of another question, which is in what way would you want to answer this question, and in what way does that illuminate your own posture towards reality? What this means is that if we are going to be able to wrestle with anything in reality and in our experiences, we need to take a moment to look inward rather than simply outward. I mean, obviously, there's a relationship between the inner world and the outer world. And 
And this is exactly what I want to begin to do in the next episode, uh, where I'll, I'm going to turn my focus to the question of the self and its relationship with life, the universe, and everything in the book of Job. So I hope you join me for that. Um, if you want to support this podcast, that would be super. I'd be really grateful. Um, I've put the link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Cheers for now, everyone. 